www.ncpb.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line as we open the Word of God together, the only book God ever wrote. And if you have a question and you're with us for the first time, this is an opportunity. If you're studying the Bible or you have questions about the Bible that you'd like to ask, uh, you can do so in the next hour. We'd love to hear from you. The number locally is 525-1859. Uh, We also broadcast 24-7 through the Internet around the world. Uh, For those in America, if you want to use our toll-free number, it's 877. The call letter is WAGP980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or you can remain totally anonymous and just simply dictate your question uh, to Deb, who's in the studio today, taking questions as they come through. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today on the Bible Line. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, I see some questions are already being typed in. Let's just uh, make sure right now that uh, nobody wants to go on the air live. It doesn't appear that they do. So I think you and I may be in trouble if this is true. Uh, This uh, question came in from Bill from Buffalo, New York. Actually, uh, line two is standing by, so let's uh, give—we always give preference to live callers, so let's go to them now, and then we'll uh, find out if you and I are in deep trouble. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, good morning. I was uh, reading this morning, and I came across the term the half-tribe of Manasseh. Yes. And I wonder, what does that mean exactly, and why is it called the half-tribe? Well, it's a good question. Um, When Joseph, you know, of course, Jacob had 12 sons, and one of his 12 sons was Joseph. And when Joseph uh, got married, he had two children. He had Manasseh and Ephraim. And so when uh, Jacob, his father, uh, gave a blessing to his two sons, he ended up, in essence, giving a dual blessing, though he did cross his hands. But in the process, he formulated two tribes out of one, which is kind of interesting. So now you could say, well, we have 13 tribes, but we still have 12 tribes plus the Levitical tribe. And so even in the um, parking of the tabernacle, which was God's portable temple, uh, they uh, camped around it in a certain formation that God had dictated in the book of Numbers. You had people on the north side, you had people on the south side, people on the east side, people on the west side. On the west side, you had three tribes. And you had Ephraim, you had Manasseh, and you had Benjamin, uh, which, of course, is also Joseph's brother that he um, that Rachel had. And so in either case, uh, they became half tribes. You have two half tribes. So you have 12 tribes that end up camping around the peripheral, which, you know, I think in, in God's sovereignty. And then you had Levites 
um, who also camped within those 12 tribes. So like in the uh, east, uh, which would be the entrance to the tabernacle, you had uh, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And on the west, you had, as I just mentioned, um, uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. On the um, north, you had uh, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And on the south, you had um, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And then mixed all the way through those 12 tribes, you had the tribe of uh, Levi. And so you had God's representatives, his priests, those who taught the law, mixed all the way within them. So, uh, you know, in terms of why God formed the half-tribe, it may be for the very formation of how the tabernacle would camp so there would be an even number of tribes, north, south, east, and west. So God doesn't tell us why he did it. But what's really interesting, um, when you look at the furniture of the tabernacle, uh, it actually forms a cross. And then when you look at the numbers in the book of Numbers, we call it numbers in the English Bible. Uh, it's not called numbers in the uh, Hebrew Bible. Uh, the, the, the Torah is given different names. We take our names from, in the English Bible from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. But uh, in Hebrew, it's Bemidar. In either case, uh, it's a book of numbering. And uh, Bemidar, the title means wilderness. Uh, and so from Middar, which is the Hebrew word for wilderness. But what's really interesting is God gives the numbers in terms of, you know, when you take, say, uh, those who were on the uh, west side, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And Ephraim and Manasseh were two half tribes. Uh, they were the two sons that came from Joseph's loins. And you take their numbers, and God gives the exact numbers, and he gives the formation in which they are to camp. And when you take the numbers, it's just, it's a miracle of God, but they form a cross as well. So you have a cross in terms of the way the furniture is arranged, and then you have a second cross in terms of the way the tribes are actually camping. And so when you uh, were up high and you looked down, you would have seen a cross. So... You know, again, God, by typology, um, would foreshadow his son in so many different ways. And it may be, again, we're not given the reason, but this would be a good speculative answer, I think, uh, that God created two half-tribes was for this simple reason in terms of the way they camped in the formation they would make. And so, you know, even the birth rates that they had, uh, it wasn't by accident because God gave, you know, so many... Uh, men and and so forth, and 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 they form this beautiful picture of a cross. Um, so when you then go into the uh, promised land, the land is divided up based on uh, these uh, twelve tribes, and the Levites again are spread through all these different. Uh, tribal areas. And so Judah had a certain area, Benjamin had a certain area, Dan, Naphtali, and so forth. They all were given a certain area with certain boundaries. The boundaries are outlined and everything. And within each of those um, areas with the 12 tribes, you had this 13th tribe, so to speak, Levi, that were disseminated all the way through the people of Israel, because again, God wanted his law to be taught. So uh, God in his wisdom knew what he was about. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Um, 
with all that's going on in the Middle East right now, especially with ISIS, I mean, I'm not, I'm not concerned about Israel at all. I know, I know they're protected by God, but I'm just very curious the the way that their ISIS is going through and just destroying everything, and they seem to be just doing whatever they wish. It it just seems to me that it's it's possible that, that they could even go into because they're in Syria now that they could even go into Damascus, and I'm just curious. Do you think this could possibly happen? They could they could actually bring on the destruction of Damascus in this time frame? Well, it's possible. Of course, God only knows. And, you know, they're militant Muslims, and they appeared, you know, in some places to be sympathetic to Christianity. But, it you know, it becomes very apparent that their sympathy was no sympathy at all. And so, you know, they've dictated in these different places where they've gone, you either pay a tax which is, you know, basically unheard of, you know, for, you know, impossible for families, uh, you know, say in Iraq where they're demanding, well, you have to pay a tax, which is $450 and people have no work and they don't have $450 or you can leave um, and just be gone or you can convert to Muslim, become a Muslim or you can be executed. Those are your choices. Uh, They said at first when they came in, well, we're going to be sensitive to the Christian community, but that quickly changed. And so in some of these cities, uh, Christianity, I wouldn't say it's being obliterated um, because the gates of hell cannot prevail against God's church, but Christians are being rearranged. And those that are true Christians, and God only knows the true number, there are certainly nominal Christians within that, but they are experiencing the same heartache Uh, In either case, um, God is moving his people sometimes to different locales, and God in his sovereignty uh, has a purpose through that. Uh, When the Chinese came in in 1949 and Mao Zedong uh, took over, uh, there was many, many missionaries across China at that point. In fact, I knew one of them personally who was there. When Mao Zedong came in in 1949, and she said, we fled with machine gun fire in our ears. But at the time, it was China Inland Mission, which later became OMF, Overseas Missionary Fellowship. But she said, we saw God's sovereignty in that because God took all of us as missionaries, and he spread us across the rest of Asia. And we ended up taking the gospel to places we were not planning to go. And so God often uses persecution to spread the church. And you see that certainly illustrated in the book of Acts. God gives a prophetic outline of Acts in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And you shall be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then to the remotest part of the earth. And so when persecution comes upon the church in Jerusalem, they spread into Uh, Samaria and Judea. That's not accidental. And so God often uses persecution and what looks really negative to us uh, for the spread of the gospel to give other people who are not hearing about the Lord Jesus that opportunity. Uh, And it is a testimony. And you have tens of thousands of Christians who have left some of these, you know, Middle Eastern countries. Uh, Egypt has basically obliterated the Christian population. Um, Iraq has done the same. And these militant Muslims have no compassion on anyone but their point of view. Uh, But God is sovereign through it all, and he knows what he is about. 
And he will use even the hard persecution of his people as a testimony because they will not convert the true believers, obviously, to the Muslim faith. In fact, very few are converting at all to the Muslim faith. I think they thought, well, yeah, you you love your house and you don't want to leave all your belongings behind. Certainly you'll convert. And so I think it's probably uh, very surprising to a lot of these Muslims to see the response that these believers have uh, towards their Lord. And uh, that's a testimony in and of itself. And God uses goads like that. Um, Paul had some goads in his life that Jesus spoke of when he saw the persecution of Stephen and Stephen praying like our Lord, even for his enemies as he was dying. That was a goad that kicked against Paul and it was burned into his conscience. And you know, God used that as part of the conversion process. Anyway, it's a great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us as this person from Buffalo, New York has at tbl at wagp.net. Well, here we go. Are we in trouble? The Bible contains several examples that God undoubtedly preferred right-handed people. In fact, there is much evidence that left-handers will burn in hell for all of eternity. Well, Rick, uh, you that, too. Rick, that, that, that helps me understand your eternal state. No, we're actually both left-handed here, so I need to be careful. But um, it, it is interesting. Uh, there, there's one person in the Bible who's mentioned as left-handed. He's actually a judge in the uh, time of Israel. His name is Ehud. I know him as a left-handed person. Uh, he's not actually a bad judge. He's a good judge, and uh, he's the guy who took a knife and put it through a guy's belly, and the guy was so fat, the belly just encompassed the knife, if you remember. Um, in either case, uh, he led Israel in a righteous way, and sometimes war can even be righteous, uh, as difficult and as heartbreaking as it can be. Um, there are some other folks in the book of Judges who are mentioned as left-handed, uh, let me just go there for just a second. Uh, in Judges 3, of course, Ehud is mentioned. And later on in the um, book of Judges chapter, I think it was 20, um, chapter 20. And let's see, uh, here it is in verse 16. Out of these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And so these were some people from the tribe of Benjamin that were left-handed. And and then there's some ambidextrous people. There were some advantages in terms of war that are mentioned in the Chronicles. Um, But again, it is true that, you know, God says, you know, the Lord Jesus is at his right hand. Uh, He talks about how he will save us with his omnipotent right hand. And the right hand in the Bible is used certainly as a symbol of strength. Uh, due to the fact that, you know, most people in this world are right-handed, depending on whose numbers, I think it's like 10% of the people in the world are, are left-handed. Uh, most people are right-handed, and so being right-handed, that's your dominant arm and typically the arm of strength. And so for God to use the right hand as the arm of strength in the Bible does not, you know, you know cause us uh, wonder. It just makes sense. But left-handedness is certainly not spoken of as a weakness. And it is in, you know, Judges 20 and later in First Chronicles uh, spoken of as advantageous, especially as it related to, to war. Um, 
and let me just say, too, there is one case where uh, a Jewish mother, the sons of Zebedee, comes to the Lord and asks him if her two sons can sit at his right and left hand. So even the left hand was a place of honor, um, maybe not as honorable as the right hand. But to conclude that, you know, left-handed people are going to hell well, I don't think so. Um, what they would do, and I, you know, I actually heard a guy once. This, uh, I don't know. I don't want to be mean here. How to describe him? But it's amazing how people can butcher the text. Those on my left, you know, into the place prepared for the devil and his angels, and those on my right, you know, into eternal life. And it's just, uh, just silly. Some of the interpretations that some people come up with. So anyway, uh, left-handedness though was viewed when I was a child as somewhat negative and it was beginning to change, but there were still places across America um, where the teachers would try to get you to write with my their right hand. And even as a young man in first grade, the teacher said, can't you write with your right hand? And I said, no. And she didn't press it, but in some schools in America, they pressed it and they tried to make you write with your left, right hand if you're left-handed. And it caused some children to stutter. It created stuttering, they discovered. So that was kind of interesting. You know, God, God creates us left-handed people for a reason and... He knows we're far superior, right, Rick? <laughs> I certainly hope so. Okay. All right. Um, on a more serious note, our next caller has a sibling who is a born-again Christian but committed suicide. Uh, if this person was truly saved, are they in heaven? Yes, they are. Um, it's not impossible for a true child of God to commit suicide. Now, you know, whenever people ask me this in counseling situations about people committing suicide, my first question as a pastor is, well, are, have you contemplated this? Because sometimes people are in such deep pain and they feel like there's no hope that things can change. And they think, well, I'm saved. I'm just going to go to heaven and heaven's a wonderful place. So I might as well go there sooner. But there are grave consequences to people who commit suicide. I would say most people who commit suicide are not Christians, but it's possible for a believer to commit suicide. And there are consequences, one, in terms of your testimony. Basically, what you've said in committing suicide as a Christian is God is not true to his word. You know, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, it's not true. Uh, God is not faithful to his people. He doesn't really meet our needs. And two, it's a very selfish act, and I've had to deal with it. You know, I've done around 500 funerals in the last 30 years, but five of them were suicides. And uh, with uh, one of them, I thought the person was lost, but four of them, I thought the people were actually true believers. And the pain that follows and the guilt sometimes that comes on the family, and it's just an act of cowardice, and it's an act of uh, selfishness, and it's a terrible thing. Sometimes, though, people need some medical attention. Uh, Their blood chemistry has just really been damaged, and I won't go into great detail, but uh, they, they need some medicine to help level them out. Now, there's a lot of folks who are on medicines today who don't need to be, and when people go to the doctor and they're depressed or whatever, you know, we've got a pill for everything. And the number of people on pills in America to deal with depression is just unbelievable. Uh, and that's not really the solution. Most of those situations are Band-Aid 
um, solutions and not really dealing with root problems. Um, so, yes, if, if the person really knew the Lord, they went home to be with the Lord. There are consequences when they got there, too, because God has dictated the number of days that we should live. And if we cut that short by our own you know, wicked decision to take our own life, then there are eternal consequences, not in terms of going to heaven, but in terms of eternal reward. Because when we get to heaven, God rewards us based on how faithful we have been in serving him and the days that he's given us to serve him. And if we cut those short, there's uh, implications in terms of our reward. Anyway, uh, it's a good question. Some have falsely concluded that people die and go to hell because Judas committed suicide. And we know Jesus taught he went to hell that it would have been better for him never to have been born. But he went to hell not because he committed suicide. He went to hell because he was an unbeliever. He went to hell sooner than he would have went to hell, but he went to hell because of his um, rebellion against the Lord Jesus. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And we do have a, a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Rick, Pastor Carl. We're on our way to pick up some of the South African team right now. Okay, great. Um, I wondered, I actually have three questions. Is F.F. Bruce a reliable commentator? Have you ever heard of him? Sure, I've heard of him, yes. Okay, second, um, does Benjamin Netanyahu, does he have like special favor on him from God right now in light of what all is going on? And, um, and, do the people of Israel know what tribe they are from now? All great questions. Let me see if I can respond. Uh, first of all, um, dealing with Benjamin Netanyahu. Let's deal with the two um, Hebrew questions. Does God have a special favor on him? And I would say, well, you know, God's people are commanded to pray for those who are in authority over them. And we are not certainly restricted to pray just for those who are in authority over us in our particular country. In fact, God commands us to pray for the peace of Israel. In fact, when we pray for the peace of Israel, in one respect, we are praying for Messiah's return. Because when the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus, comes back, he will bring true peace to Israel. But certainly we should pray for the people of Israel because God is going to culminate human history as we know it through them. And so God can, in response to the prayer of his people, be they born-again Jews, and there's about 150 congregations of born-again Jews across Israel, and I'm sure all of them are praying for Benjamin Netanyahu, that God would give him wisdom and that God would give him strength. And it's very easy to look at what is going on in Israel to see a, a one-sided view uh, because, you know, the press seems to be very sympathetic. And, and, and how can your heart not go out when you see little children dying? I mean, anyone's heart would go out unless they're just a calloused, insensitive person. But Israel is, is trying to protect themselves. They didn't start this fight. It's Hamas who started, you know, throwing rockets at their civilian population. And even when they asked for a, human, a humanitarian, you know, ceasefire over the weekend, they were the ones who broke it. And then it came out yesterday, of course, that, you know, when Israel supposedly bombed a school, 
that was, you know, not in any way some defense location for Hamas. They actually, Israel was able through their satellite imagery, able to show rockets that were being fired out of that very school. And so Hamas, you know, is if anyone's insensitive to children, it's it's they, you know, when Israel, before they have bombed some of these locations, they repeatedly throw leaflets from the sky and say, you know, leave this area, you know, you're going, this area is going to be bombed. And they've tried to act in a, in a humanitarian way. And Hamas has said to their own people, don't leave. And so there are consequences. So they're trying to, you know, defend their right to exist. And I think rightly so. So we need to pray for Benjamin Netanyahu in terms of what tribe they are from. Some Jews would say they know specifically based on their name, what tribe they are from. Other Jewish people would say, I don't know what tribe I'm from, but that will all be sorted out during the time of the great tribulation, because we know that God will seal 144,000 people from the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so all those who need tribal identification, especially Levitical priests, it will be very clear. But there are people today who very definitively would say, I know I'm a Levite. In fact, if you go to Israel today, there's a whole uh, institute uh, uh, there near the Temple Mount where they've trained people from the tribe of Levi, as they would say, who are indeed Uh, people who are prepared to offer sacrifices in a rebuilt temple. They've reproduced all the temple furniture. They've reproduced all the temple garments that the priests would wear. And they have educated these Levites in the actual process of the sacrifices that God gave in the Old Testament. And, And those people would say they are Levites. I've met people before who've told me I'm from the tribe of Benjamin or I'm from the tribe of, of Judah. Um, in America, most people don't have any idea what tribe they would be from for the simple reason that, um, you know, most people in America who are Jewish are not Orthodox and really don't follow the Hebrew scriptures very closely, but very loosely. And so to them, it's not even important though that they are Jewish is important to them. And so to this day, most Jews do not intermarry. What was the third question he had, Rick? Um, Is F.F. Bruce a reliable commentator? Yes. Uh, F.F. Bruce is kind of an interesting person. Um, Most conservative evangelicals would read him. Uh, He's written some good commentaries. Um, I, I do think that he, because of his background, does not necessarily have the highest view of Israel. And I think he has a distorted view as an English expositor of Israel versus the church. So he certainly does not make a distinction between Israel and the church. But lay that aside, he does offer some good uh, historical backdrop to some New Testament passages uh, that can be very, very helpful in studying the Word of God. And so a lot of people, largely for the historical background that F.F. F. Bruce offered, has has read him. Now, there are other commentators that are sold in evangelical bookstores that are not reliable. 
Um, some would read them for, you know, their historical basis, but, but you know, in terms of their interpretation of Scripture, they're very distorted. But F.F. F. Bruce does not have that reputation. He would be considered a born-again Christian by most, but I wouldn't agree with the way he approaches some passages of Scripture, because I think he was influenced more by English theology, which uh, was more Reformed in its background than dispensational. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next caller says that many prayer meetings in churches open with the verse in Matthew 18.20. Uh, do you believe that this is the correct context for this verse? Let me just read it because not everyone has the benefit of a, a passage of the uh, open Bible in front of them. Matthew 18 is an interesting passage of Scripture. He says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. Um, the Lord Jesus in this context is indeed dealing with the subject of church discipline. He said, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. And if he listens, you've won your brother. And so if you have a problem with your brother and they're caught up in some sin, and when you let scripture interpret scripture, it's usually a sin of the type that invites church discipline. There are some sins that Christians may commit that don't necessarily invite church discipline, but there are some that are of a more public nature that bring disgrace to the cause of Christ. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And so God often speaks of the fact that you just don't take a um, person because they said, well, this is true of someone else. You let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. That's why, like, if an accusation is made against an elder or a pastor, the Bible says you don't listen to it unless there is solid proof, the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, a tax gatherer. Truly, I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the third level, if he doesn't listen to two or three, you take it to the assembly, to the ecclesia, to the assembly of believers. And um, and if he doesn't listen, then you um, you treat him as a tax gatherer. And the Lord said, listen, if two of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it shall be done for them by my father who's in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. And so he's basically affirming the fact that when the church makes a decision to treat them as a tax collector, as an unbeliever, to put them out of the fellowship, to maintain the testimony of the local assembly, God hears. And to emphasize that, uh, he, he is affirming you don't, you don't need a whole church to, uh, for, the, for the Lord God to respond to your prayer if there were just two or three of you that uh, made a prayer to the Lord, then God would hear. So you could certainly take this passage of Scripture and you could apply it to any prayer meeting without a doubt. Um, and, and the Lord takes it and he applies it to what a whole congregation does. And he wants them to know how important their decision is because the fact that it is um, being 
affirmed by God is seen in the fact that just two or three people can make the same decision and God listens. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or always you can email us at tbl at wagp.net. That's tbl at wagp.net. Our next uh, person dictated their question. Actually, um, yes, they did. Uh, They know some Bible studies are based on the circle maker. And uh, they'd like to know if you've ever heard of the circle maker. Cannot say that I have. I don't know what it is. But, um, Rick, maybe you can Google it for me. And um, I, I don't know who they are. Uh-huh, so right. we'll ne- never heard of it. Certainly and, not a biblical term, but maybe it's some group. Or I don't know if they're good or bad. Can't say. So. All right. We did get an emailed question that they would like your opinion on the Masonic Lodge. They write, I've always had a problem with everything being so private when the Bible says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That's 2 Peter one twenty, And uh, the Masonic uh, Lodges claim to honor God in their meetings, but this person wants to know, are they really? Well, um, what the Masonic Lodge does and what Second Peter one twenty says is totally unrelated. So let me just first comment on Second Peter one twenty. He said, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so Peter is highlighting the fact that the written word of God is as reliable a source from God as you will ever get, far more reliable than even experience. And he has just spoken of the fact that he was an eyewitness there in the Mount of Transfiguration and saw the Lord's glory. And so as important as that word was, he said, we have a more sure word and the written word because experience can be deceiving to people. And but the scripture in no way can't not that he's saying that what he experienced was he's saying, look, as magnificent and as real and as true as that was. We have an even a more sure word in our day that we can go to. We don't need to have some mountaintop transfiguration type of experience to know the will of God because we have the written word of God. And so he states here that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. How so, Peter? Because no prophecy was made as an act of human will. In other words, the Scripture didn't originate in the human writer apart from God. But the scripture was in response to men who were moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. The Holy Spirit carried them away. He worked through the human author as they recorded the scripture. And so the final product, the scripture, the graphe, was inspired and is inspired by God himself. So that's really what that text of scripture is dealing with, that um, the, the Roman Catholics, by the way, use this verse out of context. They say that uh, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, and they stop there. And, of course, the verse doesn't stop there, and they then conclude that you cannot, based on what the first pope, as they would say, Peter said, 
that you cannot interpret the scripture for yourself. Not that you can't read it, though there was a time when reading the Bible was discouraged virtually totally in Roman Catholicism. But nonetheless, they would still say to this day, you ultimately cannot interpret it. The church must interpret it for you. But that's not the point of the text. Uh, that we don't have the ability to interpret Scripture. There's so many other passages that exhort us to read and understand the Bible because it assumes that we can. Um, the, The purpose of the text is to say that it didn't originate from man, but Freemasonry is a whole other issue. And should Christians be involved in Freemasonry? And I would say no. I don't think it's wise because as an organization... They have doctrines that they have come up with that are antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Their own writings teach that a person can earn salvation by the things he does. The Bible teaches you cannot earn heaven, that salvation is by grace through faith. Uh, They look at the Lord Jesus as one as many equally revered prophets. He's not one among many equals. He is the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18. And he's not just a prophet. He's not just a king, though he's both of those. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords, and he's God in human flesh. Um, They exhort lodge members, though I know this may differ from lodge to lodge, and there's probably some mason who is, you know, going to differ with me and say, well, that wasn't true in our lodge, but it's true in their writings that you shouldn't talk about Christ. And so they talk about the great architect of the universe. Um, And they argue that God is representative in all the religions of the world. That's not true. Uh, That's contrary to what the Bible teaches. And so they take a very, you know, universalistic type approach, at least a true Mason. It's just like today, there's uh, Muslims and there's true Muslims. We have Muslims who say, well, we're a very peaceful people and this and that. Well, those are the ones who've been westernized. But the Muslim who is faithful to the Quran, he's not a peaceful person. The Quran teaches you should kill the Trinitarians. And so you may have been a part of a lodge that they prayed in Jesus' name, but you're not supposed to, not according to the writings of Freemasonry. And so when you participate in Freemasonry, you're really perpetuating a false gospel. And there is a place where God calls his people to separate. Let me just turn to one or two passages quickly. I know we have someone waiting, but they don't mind waiting just a minute or two longer. They can hear this answer anyway. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, The Bible says with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. And so when these Freemasons, you know, at the graveyard want to put on their little little aprons and do their little dance at the end of the service, I don't, you know, I don't want them there. Um, Now, I don't make it an issue if there's, you know, some family member who wants them there at the graveyard But I'll say they can do their dance after I'm all done and I'm gone, but not while I'm present uh, because I'm not going to have any part of it Uh, because there is a time to separate from those who preach false doctrine and no Freemason in the graveyard can, you know, bring someone into the, you know, the, the, the big Masonic lodge in the sky. It just doesn't happen. And so as Christians, we need to stand for what's right and what's true. 
And Southern Baptists did a, a study on this years ago because they had some 700,000 Southern Baptists who were involved. But if you want to do a study, the best website I've seen is called Ex-Masons for Jesus. And these are men who are former Masons who have left. And they're not going to tell you what their lodge did per se, but they're going to tell you what Freemasonry teaches. And they're going to quote, you know, paragraph and verse. And they don't care whether things were done, you know, in secret oaths were taken. They're going to tell you what Masons actually teach. In fact, I, I had in my hands years ago, I don't know if they still make it or not, but it was a Masonic Bible. So it was basically a, a Masonic study Bible. When I started reading the notes, I said, this is a, a absolute heresy, the way they're taking verses out of context and misrepresenting God's word. So, you know, we have a bigger cause. And again, most guys who are in Freemasonry, I know it's just a club form. They like to get together. They like to socialize. And a lot of the Masonic lodges, they like to drink uh, and have a beer together. Um, I know they do a lot of good things, and the Shriners Hospital has been a blessing to tens of thousands of people over the years. So I'm not dismissing that, you know, these people are outwardly and overtly evil or anything like that. I'm not saying that. But if you want to know what their theology is, their theology is a wrong theology. And God does tell us in a number of passages, like Second Thessalonians three, He tells us in First Timothy four, He tells us First uh, Timothy six, He tells us in Romans sixteen that we are to separate from those who teach false doctrine. Because when we don't, we're giving endorsement to what they believe, and instead of helping people in the most important ways, the eternal ways, we've led them astray. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We do have a uh, live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This Anthony. How you doing? Good. Good. All right. Well, you had a good long answer this morning. I've been waiting on him. Pastor. Yes, sir. I got a, uh, I guess it would be a personal question for you and for all of us. When you preach, I'm saying on Sunday morning, you preach and teach us what thus saith the Lord. And when you're about done, I guess you could say altar call or to ask people to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What? Okay. And you know that, that I'm, I'm just saying, uh, if you know if you're good, you say, Pastor Brother, I preach a good message today, there should be somebody to respond. I want to know What's going through your mind, and how do you feel at that time, knowing that you preach it, that, that, that they should understand this. They should understand that they need a Savior. What is going on in your mind at that time? And you know that only God draws us to him. What should be going on within the minds of the people of the fellowship in the sanctuary at that time? What is going on? Should everybody be praying at that specific ending of the service where people are asked to respond? Um, yeah, no, it's a great... The, yeah. are, the, are, are the angels responding, or are they just there just looking on? And this is a very important part of the service. And I know sometimes you say, it's, it's, nobody should be moving. They should just sit still and wait till, you know, other than deacons getting ready to go up and do their work. Everybody should be still. Is this like a 
on holy ground situation type moment. Well, it can be, certainly. Um, you know, the invitation, and we are an invitational church, and we don't give any apology for that because it is a time where the Spirit of God can indeed stir people to make a decision. And very often when people come down front, all they ha- all that has happened is, is they've taken a step towards God. So like, not this past Sunday, but a week ago last Sunday in the 11 o'clock service, a lady came down, an African-American lady, maybe you may remember her, and she um, uh, she said that, you know, she was a Christian and wanted to be baptized. And so I met with her and how sure are you 100%? Why should God let you into heaven? I'm a good person and I've tried my hardest and I think I've done a good job. And I walked her through the plan of salvation and she realized, I guess I'm not a Christian. I said, that's right. And she ended up receiving Christ as her Savior and I baptized her the following Sunday. Um, So sometimes when people come down front, they're just taking a step towards God. And so God's used the invitation in a number of different ways. Sometimes people are coming down They don't really know why they're coming down, but they sense that they need to come and God has stirred them. And it's because they're going to hear a clear presentation of the gospel later on and and end up receiving Christ. Some people are coming down because they are receiving Christ that morning and they prayed with the pastor, you know, Lord Jesus, save me. Other people are Christians and they've never been biblically baptized and they want to obey God because while baptism is a symbol, it's more than a symbol. It's an act of obedience and they want to take that act of obedience. And other people are, have already been saved and baptized, but they want to join the church. And really, if they're not ashamed of Christ and it's not something that should be hidden. So as a pastor, my responsibility, one is to pray every Sunday and to make sure my heart is prepared. And I've you know, preached a spirit-filled sermon. And if I have, then I leave the results to God. It's much like witnessing. Uh, Dr. Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, used to say successful witnessing is simply taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Um, So if you go out and you share the gospel as a spirit-filled person and the person doesn't respond, you haven't failed. You've been faithful. And so God calls us first to be faithful. And if we are faithful continually, he will eventually give us fruit. But, you know, people are at different stages. Not everyone is at the same place spiritually. Jesus said to one man after he asked Christ what he thought was a very pointed, difficult question, what was the greatest of all the commandments in the Old Testament? And Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment, and he quotes the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the man said, that's a, that's a great answer. And Jesus said, you're close to the kingdom of God. For him to say to that scribe that he was close to the kingdom of God implies that some people are closer to conversion than others. But close, you know, doesn't count. But in hand grenades and horseshoes, as one famous baseball player used to say, Um, it's not enough to be close to the kingdom. You have to step into the kingdom, but God has different people in process and along the way. And sometimes as a pastor, like last Sunday, we had three people. If I remember come down in the first service and zero in the second service, did I feel like a failure? No, not at all. Successful preaching. 
is taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and I leave the results to God. And sometimes you have a sermon that is geared largely towards God's people, and they are making decisions. They're applying truth in their heart and their life. Other times there are sermons that you preach, and God is at work. He's bringing someone along. I baptized someone in the 11 o'clock service last week who started coming to our Bluffton campus because someone invited her, and she just was, you know, she couldn't stop but keep coming back. And she kept coming back because she knew there was something there. And then she ended up coming to a meet the pastor and she received Christ and we ended up baptizing her. So people are in different places in their journey with the Lord. And so, no, certainly we should be praying, but let's just say, you know, you have a week where let's just take our church, forget other churches. Let's say you have a week where 200 people, um, out of, say, the 1,600 or so that were here last Sunday were faithful to invite people to Community Bible Church. Let's just say 200 did that. Well, then you probably have 15, 20 visiting families who will come or family units that will come because 200 Christians reached out to some person during the week. Well, let's say you have another week where three people in the whole congregation invite someone and reach out to someone. Well, you probably have a lot less. And so there are some weeks when there's just a lot less unsaved people there. And, you know, you're not going to have as many, you know, potentially fish in the pond to fish from. Um, So there is other dimensions other than just praying at the end of the sermon. And there's a major dimension where God's people throughout the week are faithful And they're reaching out and they're looking for opportunity and they're sharing their testimony. And when God gives them the opportunity to share the plan of salvation and and they're reaching out to those who are lost. And when great numbers do that, more people visit and more people end up coming into the kingdom because of it. So all I can ultimately do is take care of my own life. I have to be faithful in that process. I have to invite people every week. I have to be filled with the Spirit when I preach. And if I'm doing that, then I rest in the Lord and leave it in his hands. Let's go to the next question. I think someone's waiting on uh, the line. All right. I saw some line changing take place, so I'm not sure whether that person's still there, but we'll give it a shot. Yep, yep. There we Okay, go. thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Surely. Uh, yesterday, I know you had already addressed this earlier with the ISIS and Syria question, but yesterday I was listening to Point of View, and Kirby Anderson was talking to Representative Frank Wolf, and he was talking about the apathy in this country, and I think Pat Buchanan was on the show. He he spoke about it, about we as Christians praying for this country, praying for the persecuted church across the world. Uh, But you addressed this earlier about the Christians in Iraq and and, uh, Egypt that are being persecuted. And Representative Frank Wolf spoke about this, about how there there are these forced conversions. You know, like you said, there's only three options, and most of them flee. But he spoke about the elderly that, that cannot, you know, move, so they end up converting to uh, Islam. Uh, I know what uh, the Apostle Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus said... You, if you deny men before, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So what I'm wondering is, and I, and I know 
from a human standpoint, people, you know, get scared or whatever. But when he spoke about the elderly, I'm wondering if you as a uh, born-again Bible-believing Christian take to heart what the Apostle Paul said, you know you're going to be in heaven when you leave this earth, but yet they chose to convert. My question is, is can a true Christian do that? to sort of take the easy way out and still go to heaven, or are they not a true Christian to begin with? Well, again, in 1 John 2, uh, the Apostle John speaks of people who come into the church, they look like they're Christians, they profess to be Christians, they supposedly represent Christ, but then he said they went out from us. Why? Because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us. What does he mean they went out from us, that they fled the country? No, he's, he's talking about how they left the faith, how they renounced Christ. And so, you know, that representative speaks of elderly people, but understand there's a lot of elderly people in the last three weeks who've been murdered. ISIS has taken them out, and they didn't have the physical strength to get up and leave they didn't have the money to pay the tax. They didn't want to convert to Islam. And so they were shot. And so let's not miss those people, too, who are absent from the body and now with the Lord in heaven. Those were the true saints. But those who converted to Islam were not ever believers to begin with. They're just nominal Christians. So like when I was in Israel and in Bethlehem, a couple trips back, our guide was a Coptic Christian. And uh, he, um, I asked him, I said, can I ask you some questions about your Christianity? It was clear because the mouth speaks what's in the heart. He was not a born again Christian. So if you asked him if he was a Christian, yes, he was nominally, but was he a born again Christian? No, he was not. He did not trust Christ as his personal savior. He was trying to work his way to heaven. And there are nominal Christians in many of these countries who, um, you know, they're quick to convert. I mean, why not? Uh, you know, in their minds, I, you know, I don't want to lose my house and my property and I don't want to move. So, yeah, I'll be a Muslim. Well, those people have never really met the Lord Jesus to begin with. So if they were of us, they would have remained with us. This is what the Bible calls perseverance. And there's coming a day where what you see in microcosm is going to be expanded all across the whole world. And it's going to happen during the time of the Great Tribulation period, where there will be millions of people. Uh, everyone on the planet will be asked to worship Antichrist. And if you don't, then you will be killed. Your head will be cut off. And Jesus made a very pointed statement that the one who perseveres to the end, that person shall be saved. Are you saved by persevering? That's works. But Jesus' point is, if you are saved, you will persevere. You will not renounce Jesus as Lord. Anyway, these are good questions and welcomed questions, and I'm glad people have called in today with these most important issues that we're dealing with in the day that we live in. My name is Dr. Carl Brogy. I'm the pastor of Community Bible Church. If you don't have a place to go this Sunday, I'd like to invite you to our Bluffton campus or our Buford campus. If you go online at communitybiblechurch.us, you can get details, directions, and service times. Have a great day.